A reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Mark, the 14th chapter. Mark, the 14th chapter. We'll pick up the reading in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, that is, Jesus with his disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber 
with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now to what is indeed a solemn text, a text that teaches us much, O Christ, about your sufferings, much about your mental anguish as you prepare to achieve the redemption of your people. Would you now help us by the Holy Spirit to enter into the moment of this passage? And would you teach us many lessons from it? That as we walk with Christ in this text, that we would find ourselves being united to him afresh. That our communion with him freshened and our love for him stirred and deepened. Would that in every way Christ be glorified in our lives, even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, you know that Jesus and his disciples have just uh, pushed back from the table. They have celebrated the Passover meal, the most anticipated meal of the entirety of uh, the Hebrew year among the Israelites. And it was there in that Passover meal that the Lord Jesus Christ instituted what we have come to know as the Lord's Supper. It was there in that supper where he identified himself as the bread that is torn and distributed to his disciples and ultimately, of course, to us. And he identified himself as the wine, his blood that was being spilt. As we enter into the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that Jesus, before he delivers up his body, must, as it were, deliver up his soul. Before his body can be rent, before his blood can be spilled, his soul must be surrendered up to his Father, and that he must learn, even against his own aversion, His own desires, humanly speaking, in this moment as he stares down the barrel, so to speak, of the cross, that he must now surrender himself to his Father's will as he prepares to surrender up his body for you and me. The cross, as one commentator put it, is a matter of the heart before it is a matter of the hand. It's really in that very reality that we want to look at this morning, the matter of the heart as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a long text that we have before us. It's it's a well-known text. Some probably renderings of this, uh, these particular hours in the Passion of Christ may be better known in other sections of the gospel, whether it's Matthew or Luke or John's retelling. 
You may have even been looking for certain aspects of uh, these hours in the reading of Mark and surprised that you don't see certain things that other aspects of the gospel writers communicate. But part of what Mark gives us here is an in-depth look at the communion that Jesus shares with his Father the moment that he is surrendering up his will to his wishes. There on that hillside known as the Mount of Olives, on the eastern side of the brook of Kidron, a place frequently visited by the Lord Jesus Christ. He meets there with his father, carrying along his disciples with him. He's been here many times before. We've um, already seen uh, uh, the presence of the garden in the story of Jesus This is a place that he would come, a quiet place where he could come and speak to his father, not be interrupted by the crowds. It was some distance from the city, a place where he could retire from the pressures of of ministry and once again be stirred in remembrance of what it is that he has come to do, the mission that has been given to him. But this night is different from any of the other nights that he stepped foot in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the last night that he will ever be in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he enters the Garden with his disciples, you notice he directs them specifically to to be seated. And he goes ahead of them to pray. But as he goes ahead of them to pray, he doesn't go absolutely alone, does he? He takes, well, the triumvirate. Um, the, the, the inner circle, as they are sometimes referred to as, he, he takes Peter, James, and John. And he goes a little further with them to another location in the garden. And it's there as he, as he makes his way with those three disciples. Some have referred to them as his best friends among the disciples. That we're told that his soul begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. Notice that language, that it begins to be. Mark wants us to know that something of the psychology of the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment, something of what's going through His mind and His soul, He he takes us into the inner workings of the life of Jesus in this moment, and He tells us He begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. Uh, he piles up, as it were, the, the, the language here of what Jesus is feeling, deeply distressed and troubled. It has been alternately rendered horror-struck. It, it has the language of being almost at awe that you're here at this place, that you've gotten to this place. It's as if Jesus... In his own mind, it's dawning upon him. It's registering to his soul where he's at and what's taking place. He begins to take into account the reality of the cross at the level of the soul. And all of the anguish that attends it. As he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows that the stage is set. He knows that the plans of his betrayal are already afoot. The storylines, interestingly, of the whole of the Bible are being woven into this moment in the Garden. That in a matter of time, all of what the Old Testament has 
looked to as the redemption of God's people, prefigured uh, dozens and dozens of times in a myriad of different ways among the people of Israel are culminating in this moment with the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophecy is about to become reality. And Jesus is seeing it. It's not surprising then, is it, that he wants the three of the closest disciples within earshot of his, of his prayers. Peter, James, and John, he wants them there in his hour of, of need. They were, if you'll remember, the, the three that were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they were the three who saw him in his glory And they will be the three who walk with him in what we might call the valley of the shadow of death, quite literally, here in Gethsemane. It's interesting what he tells them. He tells all of his disciples initially to watch, to watch a shorthand descriptor of, of prayer. Uh, But a a metaphorical description of prayer used regularly in the Old Testament among the psalmists where they describe praying as being on a watchtower or like a watchman on the wall who often keeps guard over the city, who can see a long ways off whether the enemy is coming. It, It could be that Jesus means almost the double entendre, almost the veils of meaning here as he says that to his disciples. You know, the enemies are coming. Watch. He will be betrayed into the hands of sinners, we're told at the very end of this passage. Jesus knows that the enemies are coming. Watch, disciples. Pray. Be alert, as the Scripture tells us, to be in praying. That's what he calls his disciples to do. And isn't it ironic? It's the very thing they don't do. It's been questioned as to whether this was just a a long day. It's Passover and uh, they have feasted. This is, um, this is the after the full belly effect. Their eyes were described as being heavy. You know, some of you have this disease during sermons on Sunday morning. You, you, I, I could name names. I will not name names, but you know who you are. You are you're, even now, you're going, oh, he's talking about me. I better get alert, right? I better wake up. Your eyes are heavy with, with sleep. Some have, some have wondered whether this is a kind of spiritual attack among the disciples. They're, they're like, as it were, the, the, the ten virgins who don't watch or trim their lamps, who are to be waiting, so to speak, for the return of the bridegroom, and they're not ready Amazingly, we're told in the text belabors the point that Jesus comes back and forth between communion with his Father and checking in on his disciples. And every time he goes to check in on them, they're they're asleep. They can't keep their eyes from closing. You know, foreshadowed in this is, is what I'd like to suggest the beginning of the abandonment of Jesus by his disciples. He's already prophesied, hasn't he, a little earlier in the text, all of you will fall away. Before you fall away, you'll fall asleep. It's it's the beginning of the abandonment, that they are not with Jesus while they are with Jesus. They're asleep at the will. 
It's a, it's a matter of prophetic certainty. Jesus says His coming. He quotes from Zechariah 13.7. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And here we see the makings of it. The fleshliness of those disciples. The spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. I, I find it ironic and, and something of a bit of tongue-in-cheek. Isn't it that he addresses Peter specifically? Did you notice that? Verse 37, Simon, are you asleep? Now we're told they're all asleep, but who does he speak to? He speaks to Simon. He speaks to Peter. Peter, are you asleep? And then he says, could you not watch with me for one hour? This is the disciple who moments earlier, who was Absolutely emphatic, Mark tells us. He will not fall away. Though these other dim-witted, uh, half-witted disciples, you can't count on them. I wouldn't be surprised if they fall short. I, however, even if I need to, will die, die with you if it comes to that. I will not deny you. Peter, can you not even watch with me for an hour? The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is is weak. It's been said that this is an apt description of pride goes before a fall. He's so confident that he will not deny, which means that he is ripe for the picking of denial. It's when we think ourselves so secure, when we think ourselves impermeable and and not vulnerable. It's in those moments where we are, we are ready for a fall. Some of us may be in that kind of moment right now, spiritually speaking. You, you know when things are going well and you're saying to yourself in the internal dialogue that you say to yourself, I've, I'm doing pretty well. Think things are good. I look out at my family and they're a model. I look at my job. I'm succeeding. I look at my spiritual life and I take credit for all of the graces that the Lord has poured into my life, ripe for the fall. I would never deny Him. I would never be the one who forsakes Jesus. It's a warning here in this text, isn't it? That when we are least expecting to fall is when we are most vulnerable to fall. Why did Jesus want his disciples to watch and pray? He tells us that you might not enter into temptation. That you might not enter into temptation. That's why he wants them to watch and pray. He knows that they are about to undergo the most significant temptations of their life. Their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be addressed and checked and challenged on every turn. The coming hours are going to be grueling temptation. He wants them in the midst of what he knows about the future to watch with him and to pray so that they might not enter into temptation. Isn't that interesting? Now, there's several things I see in, in Jesus at this moment that I want to draw out for us, several qualities and characters of our Savior that just stirred in my own heart that I think and hope will stir yours. And the first is this. I want you to notice here in those words, 
the love of Jesus for his disciples. Listen, I would have given Jesus a free pass to not care about the disciples at this moment. If anything, they should be caring for him. And in his darkest hour, where's his mind and his heart? He's caring for his disciples. He doesn't want them to enter into temptation. What is he being faced with right now? Significant temptation. But what's he concerned about? That his disciples would not enter into temptation. He challenges them to watch and pray. He is the consummate shepherd of his wandering sheep disciples. Isn't that remarkable? The love of Jesus. Notice also the wisdom of Jesus in this instruction. Jesus doesn't say, listen, the enemies are coming. We're going to need to strategize. You need to come up with a battle plan. You need to to call a whiteboard session. We need need to know what our goals and our aims are. We've got to to batten down the hatches. We've got to build the walls. We've got to strategize. We've got to think tactically. Um, We've got to to go at this like a a military general or or sergeant to, to be sure that that our enemy is laid low. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't say, disciples, it's about to get really rough around here. Go hide. <laughs> go hide. Go, go run to the hills while, while things go down for me. He doesn't do any of those things. Notice the wisdom of Jesus is that he prepares them to face the battle in prayer. That's what he does. That's the wisdom of Jesus here. You know, most of the time in my own experience, my experience in walking with others, probably your experience, if we can test our hearts here together in this moment, is that when we pray for certain trials and difficulties not to come our way, sometimes, rarely, the Lord answers that prayer with a yes. Most of the time, we go through the trials anyway, and He shows us that He will sustain us in them. That's what He does. Jesus welcomes and invites his disciples into the thick of battle. And he says, watch and pray. That's the wisdom of Jesus. It's different from our wisdom. It's not run and hide. It's not in your own flesh, figure out a plan. It's watch and pray. This is the wisdom of Jesus. But I want you to know, most stunning of all in this is is thirdly the perseverance of Jesus. I I find this just absolutely uh, bewildering uh, about this, this text and sitting in it this week. Um, Jesus knows that his disciples are going to fall away. He's already prophesied it. It's, it's a certainty. He pulled in Zechariah as backup when he quoted it from earlier in the text. They are going to fall away. But what does he do in this moment? He disciples them anyway. You you know, I'm very tempted at times in discipleship. I'm very uh, tempted, especially with with those who I I don't think are taking good wisdom or advice or not following it or um, not going in the direction where I just say, what's the use? (laughs) What's the the use? You're going to all fall away anyway. Like, just... I don't know, grab a ham sandwich, hang out. I, I mean, 
I mean, you're not really any help to me here. But notice what Jesus does in the midst of failing disciples. He disciples them. Isn't that, isn't that a marvelous encouragement? Parents in here who are caring for children who, I don't know, occasionally might not listen, um, might not follow your instruction, and you think to yourself, what's the use? Why do I keep doing this? You're not going to listen anyway. You don't care. Notice Jesus is not playing the short game. Jesus is playing the long game. Do you see it's going to be on the other end of their failures when they bottom out and crash and burn where what he tells them will begin to take root. It will only be later that the fruit of discipleship is seen in the book of Acts when these same disciples go on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ post his resurrection and ascension. And we see these men devoted to watchfulness and prayer. As they face spiritual battle after spiritual battle, modeling their lives after their Lord and resting dependently on the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? The transforming power of Jesus' discipleship wasn't an instant reality in the life of the disciples. It took time. He was persevering in his discipleship of his disciples. So many things we learn here from Jesus. But, but the heart of this text is really, right, not the prayerlessness of the disciples and not even just the display of the character of Jesus in his care for his disciples in this, this fever pitch drama that's unfolding in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is really Jesus' prayer itself that strikes us, isn't it? I want you to see what Jesus doesn't do in the moment of his darkest hour. He doesn't stay quiet. Some of us are tempted in this way, aren't we? In the moment where we fall under our greatest trials, we'd sort of batten down the hatches, we close and lock the doors, we don't talk to anyone, we brood. Often in our arrogance, we don't want others to know that we're in need. So we remain silent, we're quiet, we're going to come up with things on our own, which is a recipe for disaster. He doesn't stay quiet. Notice also, he doesn't just call his best friends on the phone and chat about it. Now, he's shared things with his disciples along the way. He's spoken things to them. But, but he, he doesn't equate the preparation that's needed for the accepting of his call at this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane as equal to simply getting advice from friends about how to proceed. As important as those things may be, what does he do? He prays. He talks to his Heavenly Father. He speaks directly to the one who needs to be addressed, who he most desperately needs. And I want you to see how he goes about it. In verses 35 and 36, we give a glorious display of how Jesus prays. Notice how he, he prays. Notice, number one, that he takes up a posture of dependence and need. We're told in verse 35 that as he moves beyond the three disciples, what's the next thing that we're told? He fell on the ground. This is, a, this is a man who collapses into prayer. He's at his wit's end, so to speak. He's at his energy's end. He is moving towards prayer, and he falls on the ground in prayer. 
Now, what's the nature of this falling onto the ground? Is it an act of devotion? Is it a merely giving way of the pressures of the weight of the mantle? Yes. It is these things. This is a man who's aware of his circumstances, aware of the call that the Lord has placed upon his life, and he takes up and inhabits a posture of prayer that's in keeping with the need and the dependence of the moment. I sometimes get asked, how should we pray? Should we pray on our knees? You know, the Bible doesn't prescribe how it is that you ought to pray in terms of your posture. Sometimes we're found in the Bible, there are people who are lying down, there are people who are standing. Um, most often in the deepest aspects of devotion, you know the posture, it's, it's laying on the ground. With your, your feet uh, out and your, hand, and your head to the ground. Prostrate. It sounds as if that's Jesus' posture here as he prays to the Father. It's, it's Moses' posture as he prays for the people of Israel, as he prepares them to go into the promised land. He, he goes before the Lord and lays prostrate, we're told, 40 days. David does similarly in the preparation for the building of the temple as Solomon comes into his kingship. He and the whole assembly lay before the, the Lord to honor and worship him with their face to the ground. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't, it's not just a human reality. When we're told in Revelation chapter 7 as we peer into the heavens that the four living creatures and the angels and the elders who are gathered around the throne, when they worship the Lord, you know what they're doing? They're falling on their face in honor and worship of the Lord. It's a regular posture that's given to us in prayer in the Bible. And notice that that bodily posture is often an inducement to the soul of prayer. Some of you might notice this even in your own praying, that certain postures in prayer or changing postures in the midst of prayer often will engage your soul in a, in a brand new way. By inhabiting a low position, one is communicating with the body the reality of prayer, that we are in need of our God. We're in need of our God. We're under Him and we need Him. Jesus inhabits such a posture here. His spiritual reality is displayed in his physical posture. And as he's in this posture of dependence and need, notice secondly, he professes belief in his Father, in God's sovereignty. Verse 36, all things are possible for you. Now, to be honest, this is the baseline of all prayer. <laughs> this is the baseline of all prayer. I mean, how many of you have gone to prayer and, and your line has been, Father, I don't really know why I'm here because I can take care of everything in my life. I'm in uh, total control. I've got things figured out. And so I'm praying for kicks and grins because you tell me to do so. I hope your prayers don't sound like that. Why do you pray? You pray to the one who you believe has power, who has the authority, who has controlling influence upon life and circumstances. To pray is to acknowledge that you're not in control. Notice Jesus' humanity here. Notice that 
He is a man and can sympathize with our weaknesses as men and women. He knows what it's like to wait on God to answer. He knows what that's like. You can go to him with that knowledge. He's he's aware of what it's like to operate in submission to the will of his Father. All things, he says, are possible for you. He knows his Father. And he goes with the confidence of his Father's authority and his power. Sometimes our prayers lack power because we don't actually profess the power of God in our prayers. Then we don't pray with much faith. We actually pray like, well, Lord, please do this. Probably won't. Um, That's what's going on. That's the under narrative that's going on in our heads. All things are possible for you. Jesus professes his belief in his Father's sovereignty. But thirdly, I want you to see as he does that, he also makes his requests and his desires known to his Father. That's really important to say. Uh, Two things that Jesus asks for specifically, notice them in verse 35 and then in verse 36. He prays, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. That's what he prays. That's his request. He's making his desires known to his father, and then notice in verse 36, he, pro- he professes really similarly but different language remove this cup from me. This is what he wants to see happen. Now, these two right are, are actually again metaphors, they're, they're symbolic uh, imagery that Jesus is using to describe the moment that he's in. In fact, What's nice is throughout the Gospel of Mark, right, we've heard Jesus say regularly to his disciples, you know, my hour is not yet here, right? My hour is not yet here. Maybe you'll remember in John's Gospel, the beginning of John's Gospel, the very first um, miracle that Jesus ever does, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. His mother comes to him and she comes uh, saying, that, listen, worst, worst thing of worst things, we've run out of wine at the wedding uh, Jesus, do something. And, and Jesus' response is, you know, you know this, it's the one that we have to always try to interpret to make it sound a little softer. He says, woman, right? sons, don't talk to your mother that way. Okay, this is, this is, there's something going on here with the Lord Jesus. It's very particular. Let's be very careful. Woman, and what's his response? This is not yet my hour. My hour has not yet come. And you can imagine his, his mother going, yeah, yeah. I, I, really, the, the wine. It's about the wine. But of course, Jesus, when he thinks of wine, thinks of blood. And when he thinks of blood, he thinks of his hour. Jesus is always thinking of his mission. He's always on mission. His hour is clearly spelled out here in the text. It's actually given to us there in verse 41. In verse 41, we're told that the betrayer comes and Jesus says, the hour has come. With the the revelation of Judas and the guards, the high priest coming, coming to arrest Jesus, the hour has come. This is the moment of his crucifixion. It's the point in time where all of the events that will lead to the cross are now underway. It represents Jesus' total rejection. And similarly, the cup is there, right? The meaning of the cup. This cup is a symbol of of judgment. It's it's interesting. He's just come from talking about cups, hasn't he? He's just instituted the Lord's Supper, and he has just said that in the cup of the Passover, the third cup, this cup of, of, of blessing, 
is a cup that's actually about him. It's about his, his blood. And now he's talking about a cup here. What does this, this blood entail? Well, it entails taking up in the mission that he's been, been given, he is taking up the cup of God's wrath. Notice the language of Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Similar language of keep watch, stay alert. O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the land of the Lord, the cup of His wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15-16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine, this cup of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send it to you to drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. These are passages of judgment relating to the nations and relating to Israel. But all of the judgments related to his people in the Old Testament are ultimately pointing to the judgment that will satisfy the judgment of his people. That's the cup that Jesus has come to drink, He makes his requests and his desires known to the Lord. He doesn't stuff them down. He speaks directly to the Lord that which he desires. But then notice fourthly, he submits to his Father's will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, tr- truthfully, this is the landing place of prayer. If the... If the the baseline of prayer is the recognition of God's sovereignty. The landing place of prayer is the surrendering of our will to the will of God. That's the desire and the aim for which we are moving towards in prayer. That's our hope and our desire is that our will would align with God's will. And the way that our will aligns with God's will most commonly in the scriptures is through The means of grace of prayer. It's the instrument where in some ways our souls are wrestled to the ground. And that we are becoming weaned, satisfied, in in the right sense broken. So willing to submit our own desires to the Lord until He gives us the desires of our heart. Now what does that mean? The psalmist uses that phrase, he gives us the desires of our hearts. I think it means exactly what we see happening here in Jesus' prayer. And that is, God's desires are given to our heart. That's the work that happens in prayer. Not just that our desires, everything that we want or wish or desire, would, would come true, But that as we make our requests known to the Lord, we release them to Him. And our desire is that His desire would rule in our hearts. We want more than anything for His will to be done. It's easy for us to consider Jesus some kind of superhuman who basically did everything that He wanted to do. We deceive ourselves, though, when we think that and we're not reading the Scriptures. We find a very different Jesus here, don't we? Jesus who experienced life as a man who understood he was a man under authority. Who could speak in the human realities of the aversion that he had to the cross. 
in one very real sense, we can say all of Jesus' life was marching towards the cross and he had his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. And in another sense, his face was wanting to turn in the totally opposite direction. If you ever find yourself with both of those realities operating in your heart, wanting to do what it is that the Lord has called you to do and not wanting to do what it is that you've been called to do, if you know that experience, which I would suggest is maybe the most universal common experience with the call of God upon our lives, know that Jesus knows that experience. Jesus is experiencing it right here in the text that's before us. The conundrum, the the complexity of this 100% God, 100% man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the writer of Hebrews, notice what he says here. He says, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus and his incarnation, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Right here, Garden of Gethsemane. To him who was able to save him from death. The Father. And he was heard. He was heard. Notice, because of his reverence. Because of his reverence. Awe. You know how we said earlier he was awestruck by the awe because of his reverence. He, he, he was in the place of soul where he knew he was in the presence of the, of the Father, of God himself in the center of redemptive history. He was awestruck by his reverence. And then it says this, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. <laughs> Now, there's a lot of theology there that we do not have time to unpack in great detail this morning. But just hear what it said. That Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. You remember the young boy Jesus when he was in the temple? We're told that he grew in stature, notice, with God and with man. He was learning obedience. He was learning obedience. He submitted to the will of his father. He learned to submit his will to his father. You know why that's so, so important? It, because he submitted his will to the father and his will was perfectly aligned in the father's will as he went to the cross and in his victory and the resurrection and you having his spirit now dwelling within you who has now promised to grow you into his image means that you can increasingly have your will submitted to the Father and aligned to the Father. That's a wonderful thing. If you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm, I can never have my desires change. I can never have my longings change. I can never progress in this direction. Let's get this straight. The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And you're saying you can't change? It could be that our eyes aren't looking at the spiritual realities of what's really going on inside of us. It it could be that as you look at yourself, you say, there's no way I can change. Amen and amen. But let's look at who's inside of you. Let's look at what the Spirit is doing inside of you. Let's look at what God is doing inside of you. I love this at the end, this final piece with regards to Jesus' model of prayer here. Fifthly, he he prayed repetitively. Notice verse 39. And again he went away and prayed. Notice this. I'm just so thankful for this. Saying the same words. 
you know, I, I'm guilty, very guilty of this, of, of praying something and thinking, oh, that's done. I prayed for it. It's done. It's done. Jesus had to continue to pray. He prayed and 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 he prayed. And he used the same words. He used the same words. You see, that's why what is happening often in prayer is the wrestling of our own souls and hearts to the ground, isn't it? That's why, that's why we've got to come back over. We've got to keep praying. If you've, if you've found yourself to pray and then not really sense that, that your soul's at peace, that sounds a lot like Jesus here. He went back and prayed some more. And, and then if you've prayed some more and it's still not, he went back and prayed some more. Not every prayer that you're going to pray is this sort of peaceful, easy, benedictory, emotional experience with the Father. Jesus prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed again. And by the end of this text, we see all of his disciples have left him, but he has said yes to his mission. He says, the hour has come. He says, let us be going. He's ready to go. He's ready to take up his mantle. That mantle is a mantle that Jesus picked up in eternity past. But it's a mantle that he picked up every day of his earthly life. Do you know that's what the Christian life is? It's not enough to simply have today's grace. Tomorrow is coming. You need the grace for tomorrow and the next day. You know how that grace is received and enjoyed and imbibed by the Christian? Through the means of grace, the word, the sacrament, the prayers, the fellowship, the work of the church that the Lord promises. That's where he meets you in. Tomorrow's grace can be found tomorrow. Today's grace will not be enough for tomorrow. It's a lot like manna. You can't stockpile it. you got to go out there tomorrow and find that God has freshly prepared the grace for today. That's what walking by faith is. Jesus took up this mantle afresh each and every day, and he took it up finally and fully right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in so doing, he completed the cycle, as it were, in the pattern of redemption. So you remember this whole thing, this whole wrestling, this whole enemies coming to, so, to, to bondage us all started in a garden, didn't it? Right? The very beginning of the Bible. An intruder, a deceiver, a, a betrayer. That once angel, now fallen, having betrayed his maker, now intrudes in upon the garden with, well, with words like unto a kiss, intended to bring low the high creation of Adam and Eve, the creatures of the late sixth day, man and woman. And they failed the test. They, they failed the test. You know how they failed the test? They failed the test because they decided to do what they will rather than what God wills. You see, that's why it's so important here in the text when Jesus says, this is my will. This is what I wish, but not my will. Your will be done. You see, Adam and Eve got their will, 
And you see where it got us. It got us with enemies intruding into the garden. It, it got us into the predicament of sin and its bondage. And you know, the disciples are just a, well, they're a perfect example of us, aren't they? We're, we were failing in the garden right up to this moment. Everybody's failing in the garden. Except Jesus. Except the Lord Jesus Christ. By the end of this text, the the hour is here. Let us be going. He has passed the test of the garden. He has passed the test of the garden. And thus he is ready to be the Savior of the world. And thus he is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to see that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with all of your weakness, who was tempted in every way as we are. Oh, and these most hopeful words, yet without sin. That high priest is the one who stands and lives to make intercession for you and me right now. Oh, what a gospel we have. Oh, what a Savior we have. How great is our sin. How much greater is the Savior of us over our sin. How much greater is He? Praise be to God for Jesus and for the power of the gospel. Father in heaven, would you now help us to drink in deeply these rich truths. It's lessons that it instructs us in and also it's rich promises that it guides us to receive. To the degree needed to every soul here in this room, would you please now portion out your grace? And would you change us and transform us by these truths as we see you meeting us here in this service, discipling us, disciples who are so often asleep, not giving up on us, saving us and sanctifying us with the ongoing work of the Spirit in the church. Lord, today afresh, would you please grow us that we might grow just a little bit more into the likeness of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.